Father, we thank you for your incomprehensible mercy that you sought us and you bought us and you caught us through the work of your Son and the power of the Holy Spirit, raising us from spiritual death to spiritual life and putting a new song in our heart. And we want to live, Lord, so it's clear that the life we now live in the flesh, we live by the faith of the Son of God who loved us and gave himself for us. Forgive us, Lord, when we take our eyes off the grace that we have received. Forgive us for where we become cold-hearted and complacent and not caring about others and not serving you and not following you and, and, Lord, putting our head down and taking our eyes off the cross. So we ask, Lord, for your forgiveness and we ask for your power that you would lift our eyes to where Christ seats above. For we have died and our life is now hidden with God in Christ. And when Christ, who is our life, appears, then we will also appear with him in glory. We thank you for that. We love you, Lord. We ask that you would make this time your time. Lord, that your spirit would rush freshly in our midst. That you would change us and transform us. And at the end of the day, mobilize us. So we can walk out of here and make a difference. We ask in Jesus' name and all God's people prayed. Amen. 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 Good morning, everybody. Good to see you. I'm regretful that we weren't able to meet outside. We had about 100 uh, with us last Sunday, which it's been a few months since that's happened. But I'm so grateful that you are here this morning. So grateful for everyone that's participating online. Um, I know there's a certain difficulty to joining a church service online, so I want to speak to you guys just for a second. Try not to think about the refrigerator and everything else, and just dial in and worship with us so that we can truly be gathered in spirit. I went a little long last week. I think I just caught that preacher's wind being outdoors, and I promised that I would give you back some of that time. So as I was going through uh, what God had given me to preach from John 14 this morning, uh, I figured out that I probably won't get through that whole outline. So don't be intimidated when you look at the outline and it's like 25 minutes in and I'm only like on two points. We're, we're not going to hit everything. The other thing I want to do though is I want to take a few moments by way of introduction just to share about some outreach that happened down on the riverfront yesterday and it was <laughs> a great, great, great five hours. Um, I've been sharing with the church for a while just my burden, I know it's Pastor Cleet's burden, I know it's Pastor Charles' burden, um, that we um, experience a renewal in the area of sharing the gospel with the lost, right? Um, the Bible has a lot to say about that. Um, we do not want to be uh, a city that hides its light, right, under a bushel, but we want the light to shine out. Uh, so that's that's just kind of been on my heart um, for some time to do that. I've really uh, just been burdened that we would rise and mobilize, right? Uh, I've been in this EFC evangelism cohort to kind of inject some fresh wind and fresh light and fresh strategy into evangelism. So all that to say this, um, some of you might know Dewan Artley. Dewan preached here several years ago. He's married to Ashley um, he now pastors Grace Baptist Church in 
River Rouge. And he and his wife Ashley went downtown a week ago Saturday to that very nice restaurant, Armando's, however you pronounce that, at the Renaissance to celebrate their 10th anniversary. They took a nice walk after that meal in the Hart Plaza riverfront area, and his heart was just devastated by all the false religion that was being peddled down there at the waterfront. Black Hebrew Israelites, other cults, and then just this whole coexist mentality that all roads lead to God uh, idea that I'm going to address in this message. And so he just put something on Facebook that he was burdened. Would anybody like to go down with him uh, this yesterday, this last Saturday, just to proclaim Jesus where he gave us opportunity? Uh, he put a video out. I shared it. Um, long story short, we went down there. Uh, there was uh, Ashley. There was um, Dewan himself. Uh, there was a brother, Melvin uh, Hinton. There was Quentin Taylor. Um, Jenny came. Some others came. And we just went down there and we shared the gospel. It, I can just say it was a lively time. It was a great time from, uh, well, breaking up a fight about two people upset because one had broken social distancing. That was interesting to uh, some of the black Hebrew Israelites telling me that I was going to hell by virtue of my sing, uh, skin color, which was really cool to have my black brothers, Quentin and uh, Melvin and Dewan put their arms around me and say, no, he's washing the blood. He that has son, has the son, has life. He that does not have the son of God does not have life. And these brothers just preached the gospel. Dewan stood up on a cooler and preached. Uh, I, uh, I also got up there and preached. Uh, we had other brothers and sisters just kind of doing personal one-on-one evangelism. Uh, we had other people just there just to pray and to hand out water, and it was just a combined arms effort. It was awesome. There was, for me, a rush of gospel spiritual adrenaline, and I just feel like the church has gotten to be so sexy with our tactics that we have abandoned simply believing expectant prayer and fervent evangelism. Certainly, we should do evangelism in everyday life, relational evangelism, right? No doubt about that. But if Paul went to the marketplace of the day, the Areopagus, Acts 17, Mars Hill, then if Paul did it, I figure maybe we can do that as well. And so my prayer is that God is just going to inject a fresh wave of gospel, preaching, proclaiming, sharing, spirit-filled adrenaline into the heart and bloodstream of our church. And so I just want to invite you. I, I think we may go next Saturday. We have to do some planning. would love for you to come. Some of you, maybe, maybe you'll stand up and, 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 and just do open-air preaching. Some of you, maybe we'll just do some one-on-one evangelism, pass out some gospel tracts, literature. Some of you just will, will be there to pray. But all of us together have a combined arms effort. And so I just want to encourage you to consider coming out with us. And if you've never done anything like that and it seems intimidating, listen, we have to try stuff that we don't have the capacity to do ourselves, Right? And that's why God has given us the Holy Spirit to do stuff that we would never be able to do in our own flesh. And sometimes we don't experience the power of the Holy Spirit because we're not trying anything that would warrant his power, right? So I'll just be sharing more about that, uh, and hopefully we can have a growing core team, just a growing group, a growing church that says, you know, we're just going to get out there. We're going to partner with some sister churches who, who, who champion like faith as we do, a God-centered gospel, and get out there to proclaim. So great time. Thank you for those of you who prayed. I will give you more information. Now, let me tell you how I began my little preaching session. 
I uh, wanted to get people's attention, so I asked the question, do you think Jesus cares about education? What kind of response do you think I got? Pretty favorable one. Yes, yes, you know, cheers and all that. Do you think uh, Jesus cares about the environment? I got a like response. I said, do you think Jesus cares about racism? What kind of response do you think I got? Like the loudest response, overwhelmingly positive. I then went to this, do you think Jesus cares about the sanctity of marriage? One man, one woman, for good. The response wasn't quite as warm, okay? Then I said, do you think Jesus cares about the sanctity of life and the abortion issue? What kind of response do you think I got there? Um, yes, very tepid, if that's pronouncing the word right. But let me tell you about the least popular response I got. When I asked, when I said, Jesus cares about this, that you know that he is the only way to God. Because John 14, 6, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. And I made the point that while Jesus cares about a lot of stuff, and so should we, the thing that Jesus emphasized the most, passionately, repetitively, and pleadingly, and persistently, is that people would come to bow the knee to him as Lord and Savior. It's all through Scripture, right? Certainly the I am passages that we've been in in this short series. How about this? Jesus said in John 8, 24, we let off with this often overlooked I am, where Jesus says, unless you believe that I am Yahweh incarnate, you will die in your sins. And he made that point most boldly in the text I just quoted, today's I am, John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Now, the crazy thing is, the majority of American Christians do not believe the gospel. So I put Christians in quotes. That is, they don't believe that Jesus is God in human flesh. They don't believe in what he came to accomplish in his death, burial, and resurrection, that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, to God's glory alone. Now, the the the, 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 the quote I just gave you, the majority of Christians, American Christians, do not believe the gospel, actually was the title of a blog post published just last week in the Gospel Coalition uh, online by Joe Carter. And in this short article, he recounts the results of a religious, of a recent religious survey among people who would confess that they are Christians. And here's what he found out. Over half of them, these are confessing Christians, believe that the way they are made right with God is by being good and by doing good. So, by people, by confessing Christians who identify themselves as Pentecostal, 46% believe that they would get to heaven through good works. 
mainline Protestants, like United Methodists, large organizations like that, 44%. Now, lest, lest we get puffed out, we would probably identify ourselves as the evangelical church. 42% of evangelicals think they're going to get to heaven because they're doing good and they're good people. Now, here was, a, here was a stat that was actually kind of encouraging. 70% of those who would identify as Roman Catholic thought that they would get to heaven through the good works. I was encouraged by the 30% because Roman Catholicism teaches a mixture of works and grace. So I was kind of encouraged by that. But only one-third believed and understood fully the gospel of grace. Of grace. And of course, we would know as Christians, if we've truly trusted Christ, that this flies in the face of Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, which says, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it's the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Or Titus 3, 6, not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saves us. So, when I quote this blog post article, the majority of American Christians are, 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 don't believe the gospel. Of course, what we mean to say is there are a lot of cultural Christians, right? There's a difference between being a cultural Christian and one who has authentically trusted Jesus Christ, repented of their sin, understand the gospel, have fled to, re to him for refuge and redemption. And that, that's, by the way, why I come at this church with the gospel every week because I have no doubt, and this may not make everybody that happy, that even in our own midst, there are cultural Christians as opposed to, to genuine Christians. And so that's why I think John 14, 6, this I am, is so helpful. Let me quickly give you the context. John 14, verse 1, Jesus says, let not your hearts be what? Now, you should, always, you should always ask the scripture question. Why in the world is he saying, let not your hearts be, be, be troubled? Well, if you go back to the latter part of John 13, Jesus says, I'm going to go away. And where I'm going, you can't follow, but you'll be able to do later on. Now, Peter, who's never short of words, has something to say about that. Peter says, oh, no, Lord. Oh, no, Lord. I, I'm going to follow you to the hilt. I'm willing to follow you even to the death. And Jesus basically says um, to Peter, no, no, that, that's not what's going to happen, my friend. You're going to actually deny me three times. And it's an indication that troubling times would come for them, right? That problems are going to come. Thus, Jesus says to them, John 14, verse 1, let not your heart be troubled. Then he gives them a command. The text literally reads like this. You believe in God? Believe also in me. After that command, he gives them assurance. He says, in my Father's house are many rooms. It's not that you have your designer room, tiger's themed room, and whatever. Okay, I don't have time to go through all that. He's talking about his, his personal care for us, right? Jesus actually says, I go away, I'm going to prepare a place for you, and if I go away, I'm going to come back to you. And then Jesus says, and you know the way, to which now Thomas speaks up, and Thomas says, here are the words right there, verse 5, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? 
And Jesus says, again, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Now, here's what I want to do this morning, and I'm not going to go all the way through this. I want us to see, first of all, what is, uni- what is not unique about Christianity? What is not unique about the claims of Jesus, okay? And then once we see what is not unique about Christianity, I want us to spend a little bit more time today and then next week seeing what is, in fact, unique about the claims of Christ and the truth of Christianity, all right? So we're going to begin by saying what is not unique. Here it is. Christianity is not the only religion that claims to be the only way to God. Did you know that? Christianity is not the only religion that says, hey, we alone got the truth. We're the only way to God. This is the, this is the only true system. Now, we know, of course, it's not popular or palatable to say Jesus is the only way to God. If you share the gospel at all, you will find a few people respond that way. It's okay if you tack on Jesus to any cause you want to. People are like, yes, 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 very nice. But when you say, no, Jesus is the only way to God, and that's why he came, you might get a little bit of resistance. The mentality is, hey, it's okay if you believe that in the quietness of your heart, but don't you dare bring that to the public marketplace. I just have to say, and I I share this with people, listen, Christianity is not the only religion that claims to be the only way to God. And if I had time, I could just rehearse all the religions that believe they're the only way to God. You have Islam, you have Jehovah Witnesses, and I could go on and on. And I'll say this, I'm not mad about that. Like, I don't have a problem with that. I don't agree with that. I think they are massively wrong, but I think they're at least logical. They do understand that truth is objective, that there's not multiple truths, but that there is one truth. I find that, to be honest with you, a lot more reasonable than the coexist mentality. You know that coexist symbol? The C is the uh, crescent from Islam, right? And then what's the uh, O? Oh, that's the peace symbol. Co, I'm trying to spell right now. The E is a Hindu symbol. The X is part of the Star of David. The, I, the, the dot over the I, check this out, is the pentagram of all things. The S is the yin-yang, and then the T is the cross. And the mentality is basically, hey, listen, all of these are valid. You don't have the right to assert that there is one objective truth in this area. So don't, don't, don't say there's one way. Everything is valid, and we should just get along and love each other. Now, I think we ought to get along and love each other, right? The gospel has something to say about that. But... My co-signing of that stops when they say all truths, all religions are equally valid. There's no such thing as objective truth. For instance, it's just, it just, it just massively illogical. It's actually anti-intellectual to believe that. People fancy themselves to be intellectual. It's anti-intellectual. You're in a math class, and your math teacher says, okay, 2 plus 2 equals 4. But if you want to say three, who am I to be so dogmatic about matters like this? If you want to say five, if that's your truth, then who am I to discount your truth? I didn't have any math teachers like that at all. They put a lot of red ink on my math papers, right? 
2 plus 2 equals 4. There's one answer. Or in the area of medicine, you wouldn't want a doctor who said, you know, it may be cancer, it, but I might just call it a cold. Or it might be a cold and I'm going to call it cancer and give you chemo. As long as your heart's in the right place behind that diagnosis, I'm just fine about it. Like, no, of course not, right? So listen, here's the point I'm trying to make. There is nothing more important than your never dying, everlasting soul. And the truth who God is, right? And relationship with him and abundant life now. Nothing more important than that. So if we believe there are clear answers in mathematics and medicine, then wouldn't there be a clear answer in the highest science there is, theology, the truth about God? Now let me add to this. I think it's actually even more anti-intellectual and more an illogical farce. You have to stay with me on this one. This movement, and people may not have the coexist bumper sticker, but everybody's embracing this idea, right? This movement is predicated on the idea that there are no objective truth claims. Everything's valid, but there are no objective truth claims, right? At least in the area of religion, they would say. Yet, in saying there are no objective truth claims, what's it doing? Actually making an objective truth claim that there are no objective truth claims. In other words, this whole idea invalidates itself on its very own premise. If you say there are no objective truth claims, you can't make an objective truth claim that there are no objective truth claims. Now, that's kind of confusing, but do you see what I'm saying? Dive into that a little bit. So let's go back to this idea that there are a lot of religions that claim to be the only way. They are at least on to something, aren't they? They're on to this, that truth is truth, that 2 plus 2 equals 4, that cancer is cancer, that colds are colds, and that there's the same thing in the spiritual realm. There is spiritual truth and there's spiritual error. So what do you do then? Well, I don't know exactly where everybody here is with the Lord. I would just say this. Just evaluate the claims. That's all. Don't believe me is what I told people yesterday. Don't believe me. Don't believe that guy in the tassels. Just, just it, pursue the truth for yourself. I will say this. this is, the purpose of this is not to do an apologetic sermon. I would say this. The preservation and witness of, 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 of Scripture, a crazy story right there. The reality of the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. Many people have sought to disprove the resurrection, atheists and agnostics and skeptics who have become convinced believers in looking at the data. Or just the spread of the church in the face of persecution and fulfillment of Matthew 6 and 18. Jesus said, I will build my church. All of those witness to the reality of Christianity, that what Jesus said is true. And I would just invite you to explore for yourself. Ask hard questions. Read books. Most of all, read the Bible and interact with people. And if you, if you end up saying, hey, I think Hinduism is the way, okay. Islam, Okay. Jehovah's Witness, okay, but I give you this promise, Jeremiah 29, 13, the Lord said that if you seek me with all your heart, you'll find me. So don't just be passive on this, my friend. Cast your lot somewhere and cast it by seeking the Lord and informing yourself. So what is not unique about Christianity? The answer is, you can just say it. We don't claim to be the only way. We are the only way. Other people say that. 
I think the facts show that it is. Now that will then take us into the second thing I want us to look at. What is not unique about Christianity? And it's, it's simply this. Well, there's three of them. I'm going to go through one or two. Christianity alone upholds justice while at the same time extending mercy. This, we, this is the only religion, and, and by the way, we beat up religion versus relationship. I get it, but the Bible sometimes calls Christianity religion itself. It talks about pure religion is to care for the, you know, the orphans and, and, and widows and whatnot. So you get what I'm saying, right? Christianity is the only faith system, religion, that both upholds mercy, upholds justice rather, and extends mercy. See, as much as there is a lot of unfairness in the world, and there is, right? We've all experienced it in different ways, for different reasons, and different causes. If there was not among humanity a general consensus we need to pursue justice and fairness, our world would be absolute chaos. Imagine living in a place where you can murder, steal, destroy, pillage at will without any threat of having to give an account. What kind of place that would be? It does happen in some places, right? And it's absolute chaos. And when we see it happen, what do we want? Justice. When we see wickedness flourish, we want a God who will step in and do something about that wickedness. We just don't want him to do it with our own wickedness, right? Right? But this just reflects the heart of God and the heart of the Scripture. Genesis 18, 25, Abraham said, Shall not the judge of all the earth, the judge of all the earth, do right? There was a song that came out a few years ago that's become a slogan. Only God can judge me. And the idea is, of course, get off my back because only God can judge me. And I got to tell you, you'd rather have a person on your back judging you than God judging you on your back. Because only God is the only judge who has the attribute of omniscience, who actually knows everything perfectly, and the attribute of omnipotence, he can bring a righteous, holy smackdown. Christianity honors justice because it holds to the maxim, he who does the time, who, he who does the crime must do the time. Does not the scripture tell us the wages of sin is death, Romans 6.23? Does not the scripture tell us in Ezekiel, the soul that sins, it must die? God is a God of justice. What we earn and deserve for our sin is spiritual death, being cut off from, off from him. Now, are you with me so far? Jesus is the only one who's ever entered human history who is qualified to both uphold justice and extend mercy. Because he is the only one who was fully human without sin, at the same time, fully divine. We intuitively know that an elephant or a monkey or a bear or a deer can't stand in the place of a man or woman, right? We know that. That would be a human for a human. 
But, but not just any human, right? Actually, as we think about it, a human without sin. Let's say a person is standing before the Lord, the great day of judgment. They're standing before them, and, and, and that person has a great friend named Bob. And Bob says, hey, Lord, can I stand in the place of my friend, Frank? Now, what's God going to say? Bob, sit down. Oh, your day's coming. You're going to stand before me too because you got your own stuff to deal with. So you can't stand in this place for his stuff because you've got your stuff. Jesus Christ is the only one that can take our place because he is the only one without stuff, the only one without sin, the only one without guilt. He was in all points tempted like as we are yet without sin. So he has to be fully human without sin, but he also has to be fully divine. Because our sin, and you have to get this to come to Christ, because our sin is against an infinite God, well, it demands an infinite penalty. In other words, we tend to think of sin sheerly in terms of the sin itself. It's, it's, maybe it's effects to us, right, and to others. But in the words, I think it was John Owen, what makes sin so exceedingly sinful at the end of the day isn't what we've done but who we've ultimately done it against. David got a hold of this truth in Psalm 51, verse 4, when he says, against you, and you only have I sinned. Wait a second, man. You sinned against Uriah. You had him cut off. You sinned against Bathsheba. You slept. I mean, you sinned against a lot of people, and he did. But he understood in that moment of spirit-wrought repentance that the ultimate offense of his sin was that it was against the God who made him for his glory that he was basically flipping off. Sin, even one, demands an infinite payment because it is against an infinite God. Now, what about our hundreds and thousands of sin? How much more do they deserve an infinite penalty and payment? So what we need then is one who is not only qualified to stand in our place, one who was fully human yet without sin. Antoine, good to see you. Thanks for coming. We need one capable of paying the price because he is himself God. So therefore he can absorb the wrath of an infinite eternal God. To put it crassly, Jesus is the only one that has enough money in his wallet. To pay the price. Because he alone is both God. He's capable of being in our place. And qualified, he has the currency as God himself to bear the judgment of God himself. And here's what happened, man. At the cross, the Father picked up the sins of all who would believe. Think about your sins. Sins aren't just what we've done, but sometimes what we haven't done. Sins of commission and omission. Our thought life that no one else knows about. The omniscient one does. Words and deeds. He picked up our sins. And on the cross, he placed them on his son who had no stuff of himself. Who had no sin of himself. 
It says in 2 Corinthians 5.21, God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that in turn we might become the righteousness of God in him. And he did that so that he could both uphold justice, that sin is dealt with, right, on the cross, but then extend mercy to all who believe Jesus did that for them, repent of their sin, and embrace him. And he proved that the check cleared when he rose from the dead. So what I want to tell you is this. Jesus is the only one being fully human without sin and being fully divine who is qualified to uphold justice and extend mercy. This is the message of Scripture. That's why Jesus can say, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. That's why Peter preached there is salvation in no other name given among men under heaven in which we must be saved. That's why Paul writes to 1 Timothy 2.15, there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. So I'm just going to close with this point, second point real quick. Christianity, therefore, is unique in that it offers a person, not a prescription. See, here's what a religion does. Even the religions say we're the only way, they have a recipe for you to follow. The five pillars of faith in Islam. Do all these uh, sacraments. You have all kinds of recipes. Christianity offers a redeemer. Have you trusted that Redeemer? Have you embraced him? Next week, I want to talk about, closing this message, how Christianity uniquely changes a person, not from the outside in, which you can't do. That's what religion tries to do. But from the inside out, based on what happens in salvation. This is the word of God. Let's pray. Lord, I'm grateful for the truth of Christ. I ask that you would extend the gospel into the hearts of cultural Christians, of those who call restore their home, but yet they've not found home with you because they've never seen their sin for what it is and turned and trusted Christ. Would you enable them to do that? And I pray for those of us who do that we would return to the gospel. Return to it in terms of being encouraged by it, strengthened by it, and a commitment to share others, share with others this good news. I pray that you would encourage a brother, sister who genuinely has trusted you but just struggles to have assurance. I pray your spirit would do what only he can do. I pray your spirit would give assurance to those who need it. And that your spirit would pull off the blinders and give massive anxiety to those who are just pretenders and not true owners of faith in Christ. We love you, Lord. Uh, Lord, we know that if the gospel fire is going to break out into our community, gospel fire must begin in the house of the Lord. For judgment begins in the house of the Lord. As we sing these songs, may we not... Kick it into autopilot, but consider the truths that Brian and Arpith are, are leading us to sing about. And would you remind us that Jesus is Lord, and if there's anything in our lives that we are not submitting to his weighty lordship, may we just 
release it in repentance and in faith that the blood of Jesus Christ keeps on cleansing us from all sin. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.